Let me take one small moment of privilege to just say thank you. Thank you for all of the words you have offered and for all of the work you have put into today and for um, the gift it is to serve you. So thank you. Let us hear now the words from the book of Job in our second reading, coming from chapter 19, verses 23 to 27. Oh, that my words were written down. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and with lead they were engraved on a rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, then in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see on my side, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path and assurance unto our lives and a hope when it feels like there is no hope. And so give us, O oh Lord, your spirit this day as we receive your word, as your willing servants. We pray this in your name. Amen. On this Sunday after that other special Sunday that we had last week of Reformation Sunday, there is a story that came to mind of the reformer Martin Luther it's not totally verifiable, but there is a story of Martin Luther who, defending himself before Emperor Charles V and other officials of the city of Worms, refusing to recant his writings, criticizing the Roman Catholic Church at the time, there he stood and said, Here I stand, I can do no other. When we listen to these Five often cited verses of the book of Job, I imagine this defiant Martin Luther. Or perhaps in our more contemporary view, Mel Gibson, face painted and victorious on a Scottish hillside. Perhaps Simone Biles at the Rio Olympics. Or the entire city of Philadelphia after the Phillies clinched their spot in the World Series. The certainty with which this testimony rolls off of the lips of Job at first blush, it is laudable. On this Sunday of remembrance, it is this strength of witness that we might readily place in the mouths of those most revered saints and martyrs. We know, though, that Job stands as the everyman for unjust suffering. He is the pawn in a divine game wherein it feels like everything we have always said about God being on our side falls away. Here, God seemingly prefaces Pilate before the murderous chanting crowd, washing his hands of responsibility and letting Hasatan take control. 
This story at its heart is based upon the question of whether virtue depends on a universe that operates by a principle of reward and punishment. Can one continue to act ethically, behaving with a goodness of heart, even when there is no perceivable benefit to doing so? In parent-speak, can I teach my children to continue to make good choices when it seems that no matter what, the bully always wins? It is a quick skip, hop, and a jump to those essentially human questions of suffering then. Why do bad things happen to good people? What is the cause and what is the cure? For people of faith, we wonder with so many different questions around this that all seem to circle in a desperate, around a desperate need to understand God's place in the midst of the hardest times of life. As often as we ask them, frustratingly, there is no good answer. And this is why they remain coming up again and again in different form, pulling on the edges of our faith. We desperately want to make sense of something that simply does not make sense. Even the most sensible of us all in our own despair and witnessing that of others wish there were some right formula, some good action, some assurance that could be understood to relieve suffering, if not to cease it. And surely this is what Job's friends were doing in the verses and chapters surrounding this one. They were trying to answer these questions. Sitting safely adjacent to the despair they were witnessing, practice, practically and with due diligence, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar go through all of the answers that they know. God punishes the wicked, and Job has sinned. God is lenient. And Job must repent. God is really mad this time. And Job must have made some magnificently bad choices. It's a predictive theology that is, I think, as limited as the supposition of the initial gamble. And these answers are weak and unsatisfactory to Job. They don't do justice to what he knows of himself and to what Job knows of God, to the complexity of real suffering and faith that can exist through it and despite it. You see, in the midst of our concern for Job and this supremely unlucky draw that has seen him to the brink of despair, to the loss of his property, his possessions, his family, his health, to the point of cursing the very day he was born. In the midst of this, we begin to notice that his friend's understanding of God remains the same. And yet Job's somehow expands, making way for a theological claim that God's will for us to live is greater than anything else. Here, in fact, it almost feels as if Job is reminding God of this, or at least himself. 
for I know that my Redeemer lives and that at last he will stand upon the earth. Remember, God, you are judge, but two, you are Redeemer. Rather than walk away or recant, Job persists to engage God with question and anger, with despair and pleading, putting to rest any argument that God cannot handle any of that. So while the essentially human questions of suffering are certainly those we come around to repeatedly, they can be as inadequate as Job's friend's simple attempt to theologize at the bedside. While we certainly want to know why, more pressing, we need to know how. How do we get through this when it feels in the moment nearly impossible? The issue at hand is not solely or even necessarily about faith, but it is about hope. How do we hold hope in the midst of suffering? We ask this when we witness suffering and when we are languishing in the midst of it. We ask this as people of faith who know intellectually that hope is supposed to be an outgrowth of that very faith. We ask this how and where question as readily as we ask the why questions, because most of us have learned by now that irregardless of our whys, we cannot escape the reality of despair and it feels nearly impossible not to get lost in it. As part of a longer conversation around the question, how do you pray when you've run out of words? That was recorded for the podcast, Everything Happens. The most reverend and right honored, Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, tells the story of visiting with a dear friend, Desiree Mokanawa, a bishop in Congo whom he had long known. Welby visited during the Ebola crisis there, and Bishop Mokanawa took the archbishop to a refugee camp. At the time, there was no food getting into the camp because, as the archbishop remembered it, there were approximately 137 different militia groups all fighting in the area and attacking the camp. They began their tour at a tent run by a medical charity, there to treat disabled children whose parents had fled and were forced to leave their children behind. Welby remembers sitting with a small boy and his sister, who was about three, and who was there trying to care for her brother. The tent was full of children who were dying, and doctors who were clearly trying to do everything they could to help. From there, they continued on around the camp and came soon upon a woman who had lost touch with her family when they had fled. As the archbishop tells it, she was a very elderly woman, stone blind, and I sat with her and held her hand, and she didn't know who I was, and I couldn't speak to her because of language, but we just sat and held hands and she was just crying for help. 
At the end of it, as we were going back to Goma, he continues, I said to my friend, what do you do? How do you cope with this? How do you deal with the weight of this? Well, Mokanawa said, I do what I can with the resources God gives me, and the rest I leave to him, to God. It actually doesn't matter what percentage of the problem you deal with. Your job is not to solve the problem in most cases. Your job is to do what you can with the resources God has given you. And if that's very, very little indeed, it's very little indeed. In the face of suffering, our own, that of our loved ones, our neighbors, our world, it is so often the case that we cannot solve the problem. So easily we can feel the absence of God, the absence of others, the depth of hopelessness. Our resources feel spent, our faith tenuous, our hope far off. When a loved one is on a ventilator, when the pain keeps us up at night, when we feel as though we have lost everything, when what we thought seemed to be getting better is actually worse, when the future you planned is suddenly changed, when we can barely keep up with the sorrow and the pain of the world around us, we want to solve the problem we believe that we can be our own hope. Yet most often, hope is found in the places where we give and receive the gifts of others. A hand held, a kind word, a space for silence, a space for screaming at God, an assurance deep inside that you are held there is a quality of defiance to hope that sometimes looks like haranguing God to perk up and to pay attention, and other times looks like holding the hand of a woman you have never met in a place rife with death as she weeps and cries for help. Instead of triumphant, rather we ought read Job's words in the deepest pit of his despair, as resilience, as resistance. Resistance to the narrative that suffering is warranted, it is earned, or it is endless. These are simply not true. These words are a claim of hope that God is who we say God is. Sometimes that is all we have and it is enough. We regularly use a portion of Job's hopeful claim as part of our funeral liturgy, that time when we gather together to care for those who grieve and to pay collective witness to the hope of resurrection. Herein we remember that it was Christ who died and who defeated death. It was Christ who suffered and healed the suffering. Incarnation is the hope, the deep and abiding hope 
that God knows humanity intimately. Gathering at that time, we give thanks for the saints in our own lives, those who have taught us what resources we have, what good we are, what good God is, what good we can do. Together and in the face of death, we make the defiant, resilient, and hopeful claim that in life and in death, we belong to God, who is in fact our Redeemer, the one who heals all creation, the one who brings a full and final end to all suffering, that we endure and that which we inflict. And in the end, we often eat together. Cookies or sandwiches, coffee generously poured by our volunteer Marthas. It's an informal communion where tears and laughter mingle visible signs of an invisible grace that God wills for us to live, and that in this life with God, we are not alone. Thanks be to God. Amen.